Um, thanks for inviting me. So I thought I would speak from the perspective of, of literature and therefore bring in some poetry. So reading this book led me to consider new ways of thinking about the iconic movement from writings of the period and the traditional domination of such icons in the story of modern Irish history, from Yeats and more gone to the Abbey to the most often mentioned rebels of the Easter Rising. So as I said, I thought I'd consider a little about how Irish nationalist women, 1900 to 1918, might allow us to think about new ways to approach some writings of the period. And I thought I would start with an obvious, but perhaps for no less significant choice for that, Yeats' Easter 1916, which as we know was composed in September 1916. And the, the particular stanza that kept coming to me when I was reading this book uh, was the following. I write it out in a verse, MacDonough and McBride and Conley and Pierce, now and in time to be, wherever green is born, our change, change utterly, a terrible beauty is born. Not only does this book extend the list of people we should commemorate following the rising beyond the predominantly male list that Yeats offers here, but it also denotes slippage between the literary, the political and the symbolic after the rising that makes us re-encounter Yeats's shock and his rewriting himself into the events after the rising has taken place. Rather than the sudden change that's described here, this book instead recounts the rising as a result of inevitable build-up of activities that nationalists were at least aware of, if not fully apprised of, before events. Interestingly too, this book uses the story of women's suffrage within Ireland to revisit the dates that tell the history of Ireland. Indeed, the epilogue offers a clever echo of Yeats when it notes that for activist women in Ireland, it might well have been the year 1918. In the year of Champagne's election victory, in which their country had actually changed utterly. Yeats's reading of events is similarly upturned in the stories from early on in this book of early national theatre activities, where the slippage between the theatrical and theatre and the dramatic and drama seems the natural result of a bringing together of people and ideologies, rather than giving the sudden sense of shock that Yeats recounts in Easter 1916, where the romantic thinkers suddenly become hardened into ardent nationalists. In this book, however, the careful overlaying of political and cultural narratives allows us to view it as less surprising that, that the poets and the teachers, women as well as men, were the same people who hid and held the guns. Irish nationalist women also importantly recast Constance Markievicz, characterised by Yeats as a dreamy, passionate talker who spent her nights in arguments, according to Easter 1916, instead of the woman who was a crack shot and who trained fellow women nationalists in how to hold a gun. This, of course, counters classic attempts, as described here, to slot Markievicz into, quote, versions of the national story, usually by insisting that she was attention-seeking and ostentatious. Useful too here, I think, is the insistence that to dismiss women's involvement in Irish nationalist assertions or activities on the grounds of non-militaristic non involvement is to <coughs> miss the point. For example, in discussing the rising, Fenia points out that here most women did not take part in armed combat because they did evidently neither wanted nor expected to, and not necessarily because they were prevented from doing so. This did not mean, however, as she points out, that they did not wish to be part of things whether running the kitchens or carrying out the very dangerous job of carrying dispatches. 
This leads us, I think, to consider more widely the notion of what it means to be present or, or there in times of political upheaval. And it led me to reconsider a poem written by the American poet Lola Ridge, first published in 1918 and entitled, entitled Tidings, Easter 1916. It's not a very well-known poem, but it concludes, quote, they are fighting tonight in Sackville Street and I am not there. Previously, I have thought and written of this poem as an ideologically enchanted poem written safely at a remove from the rising. Ridge is writing from New York. But in light of the research carried out for this present book, which shows that nationalist women in Ireland who did not become involved in the rising expressed, quote, far more disappointment than those who had, we might come to view Ridge's sentiments with more subtlety, as instead part of a more widespread fear of missing out, even after the event, that was shared amongst women whose ideologies led their, to their support of the rising and other nationalist causes. Irish nationalist women further led me to rethink another major text recounting the period, Sean O'Casey's play The Plough and the Stars from 1926. I don't think I'm alone in finding this a somewhat worthy text, slightly overburdened by its own melodrama and by its casting of women in positions of heightened and even exaggerated suffering as the events of the rising unfold. Yet evidence drawn from the period and presented here enables us to recast the play as a more authentic, if not entirely truthful, record of the heightened drama and chaos of the events of the rising and its aftermath. A time that led to such notes as are recalled here from, from memoirs from nationalist women including, quote, but emergencies by their women as well as their men, or as, as put elsewhere, mothers, wives, sisters, sweethearts, all were dragged into that cauldron of self-sacrifice. Similar are the stories of deprivation and exhaustion, and moreover of the hypocrisy of religious figures caught up in events that emerge from records of the rising. And I think this all lends an authenticity to O'Casey's jumbles and chaotic depictions in which almost too much happens at once. To conclude then, not only does Irish nationalist women carve out a place for women within the chaotic and confusing story of Irish political history in the early part of the 20th century, necessarily balancing out the historic dominance of a story by such figures as God and Markievicz, but its discoveries and revelations allow us to return to the writing of the, the period and recast it in a different light so that we can understand more clearly how writers were themselves caught up in telling and retelling their own versions of the national story. Thank you. Hi, as Stephen said in his introduction, I'm in the politics department, so I'm a historically minded political scientist uh, interested in nationalism and in Ireland. So this is the perfect book uh, for me. Um, so this is an outstanding book deeply researched and persuasively argued. It tells a compelling story about women in the Irish nationalist narrative, bringing to life movements and important individuals, and in a highly nuanced way, understands the pressures or shows understanding of the pressures and forces working on these women participants in the nationalist movement. So my comments are by way of constructive engagement <coughs> and response to a major book. Um, and as I said, my comments will reflect being historically minded of the scientist. Um, the discussion of suffragettes and the pressures mounting for Irish women's right to vote is fascinating, not least for the torturous contortions into which memories of the 
um, the Irish party, the Home Rule Party, were placed by having to prioritise it, the suffrage, uh, pr sorry, to prioritise home rule over women's uh, votes. Um, there's great detail and interesting asides about this process and the conflicts within the movements that are discussed by Senya in the in the uh, in the book. Um, I like the story about the Collecting Mary's Drive, mm -hmm. uh, which was a newspaper effort to get all women with the first name Mary to be present in an address to the Queen on the royal visit to Ireland in 1903. That was tried uh, um, by newspapers. Uh, but there's far more here about the tensions between Irish nationalism and the suffragette movement in these 18 years than in any previous scholarly engagements. And I think it's a, a work of um, it really breaks new, um, new barriers in that sense. It's, it's uh, deeply original. However, I'd like to see this discussion broadened into further reflections on nationalism. Um, political scientists quite often distinguish pretty crudely, because political science is, is a crude discipline, between civic and ethnic forms of nationalism, and all too often seek to apply these types to various national histories. Um, Ireland, of course, like most countries, has elements of both. But I thought your analysis of the suffragette core of women's involvement in nationalism brought this complexity out uh, really, really um, superbly. Civic nationalism, of course, means um, political rights as the basis for a nation independent of ethnic or racial backgrounds, indeed transcending those sorts of um, uh, backgrounds. Citizenship at an implicit contractual obligations between citizens and government as the basis for state legitimacy are crucial in this form of nationalism. Um, ethnic nationalism roots the state's identity and legitimate membership in a single hereditary grouping, often overlaid with a common religious affiliation. So you can think about those sorts of models in your mind. And of course, it's a, it's a crude dichotomy, and few states are pure versions of either. Um, Benedict Anderson, of course, exposed the extent to which any form of nationalism is constructed and artificial, what he famously called the imagined community, which uh, if, we, if we had a pan for every time that phrase is used, it would be very wealthy. Um, Irish nationalist women complicates the Irish experience further, showing it seems to be cross-cutting cleavages and visions of, the, of what is aspired for the nation, which include gender divisions, religious divisions, political divisions. They're all sort of co-located and in tension within a common movement. Uh, or in a sense, maybe it isn't a common movement, but I think that's, that's one of the very interesting things that comes out of the, the book. Um, what we heard about how suffragette um, ambitions relate to nationalism. The discussion, there are lots of rich chapters and pieces of empirical research in the book, um, which I can't go into in detail, but I'll just pick up one or two. The discussion of children's meals um, for poor children in Dublin at, and getting the 1906 Schools Meal Act extended to Ireland, so Ireland was part of the UK in this period obviously, but this act was, did not include Ireland, um, is very insightful and revealing about the complicated motives and opportunities and ultimately contradictions facing nationalist women. The efforts to lobby for the act's extension to municipal authorities uh, entail creating a, a sort of an almost um, McCarthyite-like quasi-front organisation, the Ladies' Diner Committee, Dinner Committee, so that authentic nationalist women could eschew the compromises implied by lobbying for the measure from an illegitimate government, which some of them saw this. Um, this, this movement succeeded eventually, or it started off pretty spontaneously with Maud Gone and other 
various luminaries involved in, in providing meals to children in, uh, in Dublin schools. It was serving 450 meals a day, funded partly by the Dublin Corporation, but also partly uh, charitably. Um, now, why did this issue not come under the Nationalist Women's Purview more generally? In some ways it did, but that is the poverty, the school, the, the way in which the children need uh, food. Uh, uh, particularly, it, came, it was something from Old Gone, but Passata superbly demarks the way in which Irish MPs studiously, studiously ignored sus, such issues in their single-minded focus on home rule. She calls this attitude one of indifference, but presumably it was not callousness but pragmatic calculation which drove this sort of position, uh, i.e. that only home rule could be the, the central concern of the Nationalist Party, the Irish Party in, in Westminster. Redmond and company did relent by 1914 and supported the dinner committee's proposals to empower the corporation to raise the rent, but it took, it took some time to get that outcome. Um, in the book, the origin of this initiative, the concern with poor children um, feeding them in Dublin, is, is um, put down to a very casual event. Maud Gaunt's children were taking bread for ducks to, be, uh, to feed ducks in St. Stephen's Green, which many of you will know, and that bread was taken by poor children who were starving. Now, this casualness of the event implies a lack of comprehensive engagement with basic social issues by many of the nationalist women. Um, what have, and I, want, I kept wondering, what are more general public health crises, um, such as the, uh, the tuberculosis crisis in Ireland? Um, the National Association for the Prevention of Consumption and Other Forms of TB is founded in London in 1899, with branches set up in Belfast, Dublin, Cork, and so forth. Ireland's comparatively high death rates are commented upon at the 1905 International TB Congress in Paris, in contrast to the decline being recorded in other countries. The Nobel Prize winner Robert Koch, who identified the TB microbe, uh, singles out Ireland. And then we have Lady Aberdeen launching her health campaign in Dublin in March 1907 at the Royal College of Physicians. Um, she set up the Women's National Health Association. And I think it proves to be an important movement in getting public health care progress. You do cite the Women's National Health Association um, uh, twice in, in, in the book, but not really about their role in advancing these sorts of uh, activities. And of course, Lady Aberdeen was the married to Lord Aberdeen, Lord Lieutenant um, uh, in, in Ireland, so it was a very um, difficult position from which to operate, but it suggests complexities there, which I think I want to push you on a little bit further. Um, Finally, I think there are, there are hints here of transnational links to um, the English suffragette movement, for instance, but I would have liked more of this explored. Historians, as I understand it, are very keen on <coughs> transnational historical links at the moment. Global history is very fashionable, and finding links across them. Uh, and you have a couple of tantalizing sentences about the eugenic ideas that were embraced by Maud Gahn and Oliver Sinjin Gogarty. Um, and I, I thought a linking to the powerful eugenics arguments in Britain at this time would have been interesting to see what's going on. There is also a slight contradiction between, between this, they're talking about the unfitness and, of, of yet and the need to invest in the nation to build a nation, to, to invest in children to build a nation. Uh, I think it's a, it's a tantalizing uh, throwaway which I'd like to, of which I'd like to see more. It's probably an unfair point, but I, I happen to be interested in that and know something about it. Um, the waltzing around the Catholic hierarchy about school meals, to go back to that, seems in some ways to anticipate the mother and child controversy 
1945. And there is also a sour ending to the lobbying success, since once the school meal program was taken over by government, its expense grew and its efficacy declined. And in the book you quote Helena Maloney writing that men should, quote, stick to conducting world wars if you must, ruling empires if you will, but for mercy's sake, leave the feeding of children to women who do know something about the business. Thank you. Sorry for my late arrival. I was lecturing in the school as an Irish devolution of nationalism. And I had to run from there. Um, I'm just going to make a few comments because I think we want to leave plenty of time for Sonia. Also, I spoke at the launch of this book uh, ecstatically, and I don't want to repeat what I said then, except to say that it's one of the most needed books in Irish historiography for the last 50 years. And Senny and I, who have jointly taught Irish history here for many years, um, constantly talked about how a book like this had to be written. And I am more than delighted that she wrote it and wrote it so brilliantly. Um, but I want just to go cut straight to the chase and raise the kind of issues I think come out of this book. And then maybe she can respond to what we've already been saying. It seems to me that what she's establishing in this book is a sense of that word which English literature scholars use far too much and far too inadequately, modernism and modernity. She has written about Edwardian Ireland mm. in a way that Irish historians haven't done before. She has established that these women were conscious feminists. Too much new wave feminist writing project, back projected onto the women of the early 20th century. Uh, the idea that they were groping towards something which later feminists would define for them. There's no groping here. These women know exactly what they're about. And the extent of their articulacy, which I think Senior gives us a wonderful quote, also reflects the importance of education, as some of these women themselves say. And Senya's first path-breaking book before the revolution was essentially, I think, a book about education, and a book that prioritized what happened to women when educational opportunities, particularly in higher education, were opened up to them in the first decade of the 20th century. This sense of a conscious identification with change is summed up by the title of her first chapter, The Movement. The way they talked about the movement, the sense that they were moving forward, that they were shoulder to shoulder, but also moving forward across a broad range of issues. And what I get out of this book is that what's happening at this moment, and here I must admit I'm slightly party pre because that's what I've been working on myself, is more than nationalism, that there are projects here, conscious projects, which transcend nationalism, certainly transcend the essentially rather narrow creed of advanced nationalism. That many of these people are constitutional nationalists and social radicals. And that's the kind of disconnect that's been falsely made, I think, in some of the, in, in some cruder analysis. I agree with what Del said about the international connections and the British connections and the fact that English suffragettes are fascinated by what's happening in Ireland and come back, come over to see it. And that there is this kind of families like the Lynns have this 
double life between English and Irish writers, <coughs> which I find, given that we're dealing with, I say, the Edwardian period, very interesting. I'm interested also in the way that she has produced a range of women who become, if you like, the vectors of radicalization and liberation. And they are so often Protestants. Mm. They are so often academics. They are so often journalists. They are so often Gaelicists. They are so often people involved in theatre. And they are quite often people who are sexual dissidents as well, either because they want a different form of marriage to the one that is imposed on them or because they are involved in same-sex relationships. And that raises a question which interests me and which I would like to, to, to throw open, which is the position of the Catholic Church in this decade, or in quite the whole uh, era of liberation. There is a kind of reactive fashion for saying that the Catholic Church, through teaching orders of nuns and so forth, could form a kind of uh, sphere or site of female empowerment. I tend to doubt this. And if it does, I think it does it in a very minor way. My impression from reading this book and from my own research in a, in a parallel field is that Catholicism is directly, the church is directly inimical to most of the liberations that these people are involved, involved in. Um, at the same time, one thinks of families like the Ryan sisters, who are um, a family of, I think, 12 children from a 150-acre farm in Wexford. Nine of them go on to higher education, six of them women. Two of them become university lecturers, the others become teachers. One of them does become a nun, a very powerful nun. And they are conventional Catholics, but they are also determined to live their own lives. And when they need to see off a priest, they will see off a priest. Um, this is the kind of thing that disappears after the revolution. The other issue that I think comes out of this, and it's it, perhaps there could be more about it in another book, is the issue of Irish sexuality, which has been so little written about. And when it is written about in one recent study, it is written almost entirely from the evidence given in court or from transgressive relationships of one sort and another. It is very hard to chart the history of consensual sexuality. But as I've tried to show in another place, through letters and diaries, it's surprising how much can be done. And these are women who, certainly Rosalind Jacob read Freud. Mm. These are women who believed you didn't have to be married to have a child, several of them. There were also, of course, much more conventionally, uh, um, um, women of much more conventional attitudes. But there is a strong current, and Maud Gone is prominent among them, of what would be called in England new women here. And this again disappears. And there we come up against the nature of Irish Edwardian society, as I deliberately call it. We've recently started talking about Victorian Ireland, began as a literary concept, now it's used more, I think, among historians. But Edwardian Ireland seems to me a not dissimilar place in many ways to Dangerfield's Edwardian crisis in Britain, a moment when strange deaths are happening all around, and a percussion of crises are beginning to bump off and ignite each other. And I'd like also to discuss that. The question of age and generations, which clearly isn't in dead peaks of mind, is also, I think, important here. So many of these people are born around 1882, as was James Joyce, of course. 
And it, there seems to be, I don't want to get too Yates in here, a kind of astrological confluence which produces a radical generation. Finally, reading this book, I return to the old question of why were so many women anti the treaty? Why did they stay with the dissident Republican wing, with a few prominent exceptions like Jenny Wise Carr, a big figure in this book and an important figure? Well, there's the line by P.S. O'Hegarty, repeated rather oddly by Tom Garvin, as Senya sarcastically points out somewhere, uh, that these were Valkyries, that these were uh, naysayers, that these were women driven by some furious hysterica passio, which would make them ipso facto irrational, um, unreliable, undemocratic, and infuriated. I think it's more likely that they were against the treaty because they saw it meant the disappearance of a promised new world, which they had been so committed to. And that this new world starts disappearing from around 1918, the year that his book officially ends, which of course is when the Catholic Church swings its weight onto the side of Sinn Féin over the conscription issue, and when, as I have recently asserted, nobody's contradicted me yet, a new kind of hard man with guns from a devout faith and fatherland background begins to take over the revolution. Instead of the radicals, the journalists, mm. the theatre-goers, the academics, who had made the years up to 1916 what they were. For women like Muriel McSweeney, who always wrote about the Holy Roman Capitalist Church in her letters, and who went off to become a communist in Weimar, Germany, after the treaty. For women like that, the treaty and what it led to it was the end of an era of hope. It was a restabilizing of various forms of patriarchy which the new Irish state would um, impose. When discussing my own book with Matt Kelly recently, he said, I think what you're saying is that 1916 ended something. It didn't begin something, which I hadn't thought of it in that way, but it seemed absolutely right. And I think for these women, 1918 ended something. And that's what Senior has shown very brilliantly and effectively. It should begin many discussions, and it should begin what Des referred to as the broadening out of discussions of nationalism, and not only Irish nationalism. Okay. Um, thank you. Thank you so much. It's, I mean, one of the really interesting things about listening to comments and even reading reviews about one's work, I think, is, is what people find in it. And it's always very, very different. Um, I mean, I was interested, Des, that you were interested in the, the meals and the Women's National Health Association, the dinner, the, the, yeah, the Ladies' yeah. Dinner Committee. Uh, the, the Women's National Health Association is interesting, um, I agree. You'll be happy to know that I'm writing about them in my book now. They weren't nationalists, which is why they didn't make it into this book. Uh, they're also, I think you're right to sort of point out some of the kind of contradictions and tensions in there because Lady Aberdeen is, you know, an, obviously an establishment figure. She calls herself a nationalist, but most nationalists think she's a fake nationalist because she's part of the British establishment, so it's always very difficult. Uh, a lot of them call her Lady TB behind her back, apparently. Uh, and it's strange because she's a very active suffragist as well. She's an interesting woman. The one thing that I, I want, I'd rather just have some questions actually and maybe just talk about some of these, some of the, the, the issues that, that were raised here because obviously I can't talk about all of them but Tara, I loved your, um, your expression of, about 
what it means to be in the present, that really got me thinking because one of the things that really struck me about this, this generation um, of women is that they were so aware of themselves as special. Mm. I think Roy's written about this fantastically as well. These are people who are living in an era where they feel that they are going to do something important, that something's changing. And you, you see that, don't you, Roy, in Absolutely. diaries and so yeah. on. They are so conscious of being important and of being at the cutting edge of something. Uh, and most of them are at the cutting edge of many things. That's why it's such an interesting era. Feminism, nationalism, socialism, some of them, modernism, all sorts of things. And one of the one of the reasons that I ended the book at 1918 was, was precisely because of what Roy was saying about Edwardian Ireland, was to sort of disrupt this Irish chronology. And in fact, some of the readers for the press were really annoyed about this <laughs> and said actually 1918 was the beginning of, for example, Kumanaman rather than the end. Well, I, I disagree. Uh, and it's been interesting, though, how many times it's been commented on because 1918, I don't know any other books in Irish history that end there, but it seemed to me that if we're talking about nationalism and feminism, it's such an obvious place to begin the rise of Sinn Féin, the decline of the Irish Parliamentary Party and the enfranchisement of women, which are not unconnected. Uh, and that's really where I'll, I'll finish, just to say that the main, the main, this is something I hope, I think everybody's picked out and I'm grateful for it because my, my main, the main point of this book was to show that women's history is not an added extra. It's not something that's nice to have. It actually, knowing about women's history changes the way we think about this period. And my, my greatest ambition for the book is that people realise that. And it's so obvious that it seems incredible to me that it hasn't been seen more widely. For example, uh, there's a lot of, con lot of discussion, a lot of research in the whole business of why Sinn Féin won so many seats in 1918. Why did the Irish Parliamentary Party, which had dominated nationalist politics, decline? And one of the obvious answers is because they had no women supporters. And it's yeah. because they forced women out mm -hmm. deliberately. Uh, and women in 1918 and 17 are saying this. One, Jenny Wise Power, one of my favourites, says, the, the uh, representation of the People Bill is the winding sheet of the Irish Parliamentary Party, which is absolutely brilliant. And it, you know, Irish historians, as, as Roy knows, have debated endlessly about this. Was it a generational thing? Was it this? Well, when you have 40% of the electorate in Dublin, Cork and Belfast being female, it's not, it's not difficult to see how that affects things. And finally, the one that I talk about the most, because I think it's the most striking, is the proclamation of 1916, which explicitly enfranchises women. Mm -hmm. Edward Carson had enfranchised women in Ulster in 1913. Both Northern Ireland and the Irish Free State enfranchise women uh, of uh, younger than 30 before London does. There's something going on here. Mm -hmm. And it tells us that feminism is a, has a very deep influence on nationalism. It's shaping nationalism in as much as, as much as, if not more than, f uh, nationalism, feminism is being uh, shaped by nationalism. So if, if people would like to ask some questions, that, that, would, be, that would be great. Or I can keep talking. <laughs> I suppose I should, otherwise I'll be running away without asking one, so I've got to get back to it. Um, on the sort of point that, that uh, Roy was raising at the end, I mean, the, 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 the um, degree to which the end of the war um, changes <coughs> the dynamic of the nationalist movement. I mean, I, I suddenly find that very suggestive, actually. I was thinking, that, you know, could you also sort of draw this into the wider global picture of, of the moment, where, uh, in, in a sense, the 
the exigencies of civil conflict um, perhaps bring different people to the fore compared with you know, the, the intellectuals. I mean, I'm immediately thinking here of, of, of the Bolshevik Revolution yeah. and the marginalization of someone like Alexander Kollontai um, in, in the process of the civil <coughs> war. Um, and in, in a way, I mean, it brings me back to thinking how important 1919 is actually mm. as, a, as a year where the dynamics change. And then in very interesting ways, because I mean, sometimes you have, you know, elements of, of, of an accelerated radicalism in one direction <coughs> combined with a, with a reactionary element in a different direction. I'm not formulating that very well, but I was wondering, you know, in, in terms of, you know, in, in a sense, the transnational and the international dimension here. Yeah, I mean, I, I, really, lots of lots of points in there that, that are interesting. The, the transnational part of it is is interesting because obviously many of the families that I write about, many of the women I write about, have deep connections with England, especially the Protestants. But it goes much further than that. It, there are real connections with America, as there always have been for uh, nationalism. The Irish women's movement, the Irish Republican women's movement, targets uh, the Americans from 1917. Lots of visits, lots of fundraising, and so on. Uh, lots of talk about how how uh, democratic Irish republicanism is because of its <coughs> position on women, which most historians of Irish nationalism simply would not recognise. Uh, the, 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 the standard kind of interpretation of nationalism in this period, both constitutional and republican, is that it was conventional. It was deeply Catholic. I, I disagree. Uh, the fact that we have so many women involved in these events, shaping these events. It really does does seem to suggest the very opposite. But the other the other international dimension that I didn't have time to look at, but I would like to at some point, is is the continental one as well. Uh, many of the women that I write about spend time in Europe, particularly in Germany and France. Kathleen Lynn, who's a doctor and um, is in the Irish Citizen Army, is, is educated in Germany, as many medical women are in this period. Three so of the Ryan sisters teach in Germany. In Germany, Germany. yeah. The, and it's, 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 it's interesting that it's Germany, because most, uh, most mm. Catholic, uh, Catholic women who, who have an overseas education tend to go to France or Belgium to a convent. Protestant women tend to go to the more serious educational establishments, and some of the Catholic ones, like the Ryans. But that's quite unusual, I think, for them to go to those sorts of places. So that... That international connection, I think, is very important. <laughs> the point of the First World War, um, I mean, obviously, you know, there's so much to say about that. I think, the, I think Irish women had a particular kind of war. I mean, there were several kinds of wars. But in terms of the politicisation of women and the role of women in nationalist politics, the key issue is conscription there. Uh, much more so than people have recognised. Women ran the anti-conscription campaign and they won that campaign quite clearly. There's no, there's no question about it in very interesting ways. So, but also, th there's a lot of discussion in the Irish press, women's press, Republican, nationalist or just social press, about the war. And women are talking about the war and what it's done in very interesting ways from 1914. They're already saying, you know, this is going to change everything. And that remains right down to 1918. There's, there's a sense in the press that the war has given women opportunities. And they're not the kinds of opportunities that we might imagine or recognise necessarily. Certainly there are some opportunities for women to go into paid work, but not too many, because Ireland has a different economy from the rest of the UK. But for example, um, the expansion of nursing means that Republican women are being trained by the government <laughs> to eventually stand up to British forces at Easter 1916 and beyond. So women do take advantage of all that kind of thing. It becomes much more normal to see women walking around in uniforms, for example. So the war does have all sorts of consequences. <coughs> on Roy's 
sort of Roy's point about the treaty, I think, is what you're kind of getting at there as well. I think it's really fascinating. I've been thinking about this an awful lot, actually. I think, I think you're absolutely right. But I think one of the reasons that, one of the things that Des and Taro are both saying about the book that I was trying to get across is this idea that women who participated, for example, in 1916, which is a military revolt, had no sense of themselves as being inferior. They absolutely saw themselves as part of it. They did a different job sometimes, and that was fine. I think that really shifts after 1918 and down to 1919 when you get the rise of the citizen of the soldier politician in Ireland. Because in 1916, they're all comrades in arms. Um, they're all propagandists of one kind or another. When we get into the free state, you're getting men who have actually fought and are using, are using that experience as a kind of lever into politics. And that is something that women just cannot compete with. Before this time, they could. After that, the soldier politician uh, becomes king in Irish politics. Would you agree with yeah, that? Yeah, absolutely. It's that ship that I was, I was mentioning earlier. Thank you again to the panel, all three of you, particularly Roy, if I may say, for, for going lunch and running here. <laughs> Good for your fitness, if not for anything else. And above all to Senya, uh, congratulations on the book and thank you for your time.